Hello and welcome to Behind the Ops. This is episode nine. I'm your host, Kyle Oberholzer, and with me I've got a coworker from Tulip. Can you introduce yourself, Sam? My name is Sam Feller, and I am a product manager for the Edge team at Tulip, and we connect stuff at the Edge to Tulip. What do you mean by the Edge? So the Edge refers to like things in the physical world. I think my one of my favorite quotes was, you can't plug a camera into the cloud. So you have people that need to work with Tulip, you have torque wrenches, various sensors, like different types of machines, different types of data acquisition systems, PLCs, and you're trying to gather data from all those things and get them into Tulip. So it's not the app building portion of Tulip. It's not the analytics portion of Tulip. It's the the part where you connect the physical world to Tulip itself. Neat. That's pretty cool. So yeah, tell me a bit more about yourself. How'd you get to uh, Tulip? How'd you get started in the whole product and engineering space? Yeah, there's like a a short version and a longer version (laughs) because it's a podcast. I'll I'll hit you with the slightly longer version. I actually interviewed at Tulip four years ago. So I think I was running a Kickstarter at the time and I had found some turnkey circuit board manufacturing systems. And it was really cool how you could upload a bill of materials and like click a button and then just get parts back. And there was no equivalent system for mechanical stuff. And I I think one of the differences between doing a turnkey box build on a mechanical thing and turnkey box build on just like a, a populated PCB, like a mechanical box build has so many more things that are just different. And the level of effort necessary for getting like good work instructions written to the point that like a well, I don't want to say an untrained operator, but like an operator who is not an engineer. Getting work instructions to that point is super challenging. And so I remembered seeing something about Tulip, probably on one of the newsletters I read, probably on the prepared.org. And I was like, it's kind of interesting. I was like, this might let you do turnkey box build stuff. And so I came in, like, not intending to interview, but it it sort of turned into an interview. uh, And it just, it wasn't the right thing for me at the time. But four years later, I wrote a blog post about some stuff and basically said that I was on the market for a job. (laughs) And one of the people that I had interviewed with four years prior saw my blog post and recruited me. What's your blog like? Do you have, like, an engineering blog or... The blog is called awkwardengineer.com, which I've sold stuff through, like through Kickstarters and other products through awkwardengineer.com. But the blog is now, I call it more of a creative outlet. It's got a mix of like me writing about engineering, me writing about product development, product management, project management, like various art projects, like silly little ideas. I think the most recent blog posts. I have one with photos around Somerville. The one prior to that was some book reviews for a bunch of books that I'd read. Hmm. Prior to that, I think it was a blog post. I called it Popsicle Sticks at the Collegiate Level. So someone from Boy Scouts asked me if I'd come talk to their kids about engineering and if I had an activity for them. And then I went off with like, this is how I would take popsicle sticks to like a level of first principles and then engineer and design a course sort of built around like 
statics and strength and materials mm-hmm. for like an engineering class at the college level, but based on like students physically breaking popsicle sticks, understanding like the failure modes of popsicle sticks, building a statistical understanding of like the strength of a popsicle stick, and then bringing that to like a bridge design mm-hmm. class or something like that. So yeah, the blog covers a lot of things. <laughs> That's neat. Uh, if I had a nickel for every single bridge I built in college for, I think I did pasta, I did popsicle sticks, I did straws, maybe. But did you mathematically like quantify the strength of the pasta and then design a bridge using those pasta specs? I didn't, but my general engineering teacher was a civil engineer. So while all the other courses just was most weight, we wanted the most uh, strength to weight ratio. Yeah. So we were a bit fancier. You probably just threw popsicle sticks together or or like your little pasta bridges and we're like the heck with it. Mm -hmm. I want, I want to understand like, what's the difference for like a popsicle stick breaking under a bending load. If you have a popsicle stick glue joint and it's a lap joint, like (laughs) how does that lap joint perform in like shear? How does it perform intention how does it perform under bending loads like that's that's what i want to do for my popsicle sticks class i want the popsicle sticks class that sounds fun that's really interesting so like before tulip you had your blog right and you were making some stuff on kickstarter were you doing anything else any prior career paths so between that initial interview like four years ago let's see i was at a startup called right grid that made solar powered cell phone charging kiosks Then I freelanced for a while. I ended up at Amazon where I was working on something called the Dash Cart, which is this like cloud connected machine vision powered shopping cart that would like instantly identify whatever you put into the shopping basket. Mm -hmm. From there, I ended up at Alexa Knowledge, which was a group where if you've ever asked Alexa a factual question, like who was president of the United States in 1892, uh, your question probably passed through my team's systems at one point (laughs) or another. And then after that, I I left Amazon to make a startup. There's some ideas I had related to project management Mm. that I wanted to turn into a product. And it it very quickly went nowhere, which is okay. And then I ended up a tulip. Neat. So like, God, I got to imagine, like, what's that like working at Amazon and then having A, the whiplash of doing that and then going to do your own thing. And then B, the whiplash of going from both of those and then going back into Tulip, which is, you know, generally pretty startup-y, pretty small uh, business. Like, what's it like going between engineering and the different environments? <laughs> so <laughs> leaving leaving Amazon wasn't too hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've left jobs to start companies before. And so I was pretty confident that no matter what happened, I would be okay. I was like, it was, it was basically like, I viewed it as as a win-win situation. I was like, I'm either going to have a company that's successful, which will be awesome, or I will learn a bunch and get a cooler job, which Mm. will also be awesome. So the process of like deciding that Interabang was the name of the company, Mm -hmm. the process of deciding that Interabang wasn't working was like um, incredibly like emotionally wrought. Like that, that was hard. Uh, it doesn't feel good, but like at the end of the day, like it doesn't really matter. Learned a bunch, failed fast, 
And then I decided I was ready to start something new or, or join an existing company. So I don't think it was too hard to transition to Tulip. I had already been through like the mental headspace mm-hmm. of, of having <laughs> a company wind down. God, I'm so fascinated by what you did at Amazon. Sounds like you took a really kind of varied path through there. Yeah, I've had a, I've had a very zigzaggy career. I've, <laughs> I've done a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mostly like hard engineering stuff or more supply chain-y kind of things? Or what did you kind of enjoy the most or was the most interesting? So the first half working at the dash cart was definitely a wild experience because that was a skunk works team. Mm-hmm. We effectively had unlimited money, which was kind of cool. It's it was not- a good to work with. Yeah. It, it's not every day that you get to be in an engineering organization and just have unlimited money. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that when we in like my first quarter there, like there were only something like 15 people in the group and we didn't have a purchasing agent. And I think that like the 15 of us that were there, I think we like collectively expensed a quarter million dollars on credit cards <laughs> in the span of three months. Like that was pretty wild. That's insane. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's fun. So like that cart you said works with computer vision and yep. I know that can generally be a finicky thing, especially as like different products on the shelves are going to act differently. Some of them are soft, so they're probably going to have different shapes. Like how do you control for things like that? Like what's it like trying to make something that knows what everything in the entire grocery store looks like? I mean, it's incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm. And we had we had about 30 people on the machine vision team, most of whom had PhDs. So it, it takes a small army of PhDs. <laughs> I don't want to talk too much about yeah, yeah, yeah. like the actual algorithms because I don't think I should. <laughs> but I mean, the experience, like the amount of ground truth data that we collected, like this was not something I'd ever seen before. We had an entire team dedicated to data collection and data annotation. So like each shopping trip, like we had a a pretend store. And so we would have like the internal engineers like go on pretend shopping trips every day. And from the shopping trips, we would catalog like thousands of images and the the data team like it's not just that they cataloged images they had to build out the infrastructure to be able to like get all those images get the images off the shopping carts like process and store those images in a useful place and then the images had to be annotated and like ground truth so they had to build like tooling and annotation systems that were like specific to the unique things that we were looking for like the unique pieces like tags of ground truth mm. we had to build systems for that and it i mean it was it was a serious undertaking like it was thousands upon thousands upon thousands of images that went into like building the training set for these algorithms god that's got to be wild the uh the data set you get out of that at the end of the day has got to be really really interesting Oh, it's huge. <laughs> it's massive, right? Yeah. So I was seeing on, you know, on your blog and and just kind of talking and working with it, it seems at least like you're interested in like the praxis of management and product management and scheduling and things like that. Like almost kind of the theory behind like how to effectively manage people and teams and time. I'm a process nerd. <laughs> yeah. So like, what have you been reading recently? I read a lot. Continuous Discovery Habits is a book about product management I've picked up recently. And then the most recent book that I finished was something called Decisive, which is about like decision-making processes. I'll start with Continuous Discovery Habits. It's basically like 
content from five or six other product management books that's like squished together and then there are a couple like new takeaways mm. so there were there were techniques in there from marty kagan's inspired uh there's stuff in there from the google's like design sprint book there is stuff in there from the mom test which is about user research there's stuff in there from rocket surgery made easy which is about usability testing so it definitely covers topics from all those things and then the thing that was new for me was this idea of something called an opportunity solution tree so a lot of times you end up with like ordered lists of things and when those things aren't necessarily equal like comparing apples to apples is one thing, but oftentimes when you come away like from studying user problems or or like features you want to build, you might have like not just an apples to oranges problem, but now you I call it apples, oranges, walnuts, bananas, and raisins. Like hmm. super hard to like compare those things and sort them to each other. Right. And so what her take is is to build this like opportunity solution tree, which is this like hierarchical tree. And you sort of classify problems or opportunities in it. And then for each problem set, you start exploring like a space of potential solutions. And the whole idea was to encourage like better decision making. Mm-hmm. And so the, the author in her book was like, the next book you should read after this book, of course, is a book called Decisive. And it is a lot about like the psychology of decision making. And most people, like if you go with your gut, oftentimes the first choice is not the best one. And so people who have more time on their hands than I do and study these things as academics are like, well, there's like variety of ideas, like quantity of ideas, all, all sorts of other stuff that all lead to better like ways to evaluate creativity and, and opportunities or something like that. And so I don't remember all the details from the book, but the big takeaways were a couple techniques for like broadening your horizons. So they're like, every time you have an either or decision, that should be a red flag to look for alternate possibilities or ways to do like instead of either or find a way to make it an and like Mm -hmm. is there a way to do both like we had a technical choice we were like well we can do it this way or we can do it this way and i was like you know there is a third choice where we can wait for you to architect all these other things and then come back to it at a later point in time once they're settled like we have plenty of other work to do and so there was like an instant red flag i was like this is an either or decision we don't need to do this and i was like what are the other choices so waiting was a choice Mm -hmm. other stuff that i got out of that book was some tools for like creating psychological distance just be like how would i feel in 10 minutes in a month like in a year Mm -hmm. what would someone else do in this same situation also a good tool Mm -hmm. and then i think my favorite one of all of them was what would have to be true to make this decision right and also what would have to be true to make me change my mind yeah okay so you want to think about like what about this what i want to have changed or what i want to have better or worse or different in order to make me have a better decision and then work towards that way instead yeah it's a way of like shifting your perspective Mm -hmm. and being like well if that would have to be true can you investigate that to see if it's true or not like Mm -hmm. can you do something to figure that out like is that potentially Mm -hmm. faster or easier than the big path that's neat yeah that makes sense those are the random things in my head yeah (laughs) i love it like it's really interesting to me to like think about these in the context of you know certainly 
my job and working with you and working here and all this, this good stuff. But then also, like, I'm really curious, like, if you know all these techniques, we'll call them, and you want to apply these different methods of project management, like, you obviously saw one of the biggest companies in the world and how they operate and tend to do things in a different way than like the super small people like us. So like, what's it like to manage a project at such different scales? Like, is anything similar or is there any like common threads or does it just tend to be completely different things? I think Tulip is big enough as a company now where we can benefit from a lot of things that Amazon does. There's definitely a point where you have like a small enough group of people and everyone knows everybody and everybody talks to everybody and it's not worth the overhead at all of building like separate management systems. You can just kind of like scrap your way there. Mm-hmm. And I think Tulip's a little bit past that. And the thing that I'm most interested in are finding like lightweight systems or how to like strip down the big formal systems to make them serve you. Mm-hmm. I think my quote is, I like systems that work for you and not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Amazon, I I think, is reasonably good at making the big systems work. Like Mm -hmm. They mostly work for you instead of the other way around. Amazon, at its core, is a process company. Like They're an operations and process company. It's how they ship so many things to so many people, but that extends and permeates through the entire culture. Going off of that, then, if you wanted to like give advice to somebody, right, saying, hey, I've managed all these big things, varied things, I know all these different experiences and thoughts from other leaders in the space, like what's your top quick two tips on like how to improve project management? What's like a common thing that people do that they shouldn't be or should be improving or anything like that? There were two specific things that made like project management click for me when I had to manage like large cross-disciplinary projects which is not all projects, but is often many projects. And things that are useful for large cross-disciplinary projects are often useful for (laughs) for smaller, less cross-disciplinary ones. Mm -hmm. But the two things that clicked were you need to build a system so that information is sent on a push basis, not a pull basis. Mm -hmm. So it meant like as a project manager... I couldn't walk around asking people for status. Like that's a that's a poll basis. I needed information to come to me. So you need to build systems so information flows to you in that direction. And then the second thing is knowing what information to collect. And the information you need is what do I get and when do I get it? And if I'm not going to get it when I'm supposed to, like why and what are you doing about it? And so those two things lead to like, snappier, clearer thinking, clear communication, better information flow. And then it's what you do with the, that information that's like valuable. Those are separate activities than like planning a project that's a different discipline. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't necessarily like help you decide what to do when things aren't going well, but I can at least get everyone on the same page, which is I think half the battle with a large group. Mm-hmm. And I, I think once you've clarified like the what do I get and when do I get it? Once you make sure that information flows that way, if people are unclear on the what do I get portion, it becomes very obvious. And then that's usually step one in in clearing things up Mm -hmm. is is clarifying deliverables. Yeah, really, really interesting. I mean, it's important stuff, right? Like making sure that you know actually what the thing you're making 
or doing or accomplishing is, is, is something that, I mean, honestly, I often forget if I'm trying to scope a big new project or whatever, I'm trying to think about, okay, I'm going to have to do these big three things in order to get there. And I have these large processes I got to put in place and stuff, but putting everything in the frame of what is actually the thing at the end, the deliverable, the like meat of the actual thing I'm making is really helpful for that. Yeah. Like, I don't know, we've got a big order of Edge IOs with the launch of our new Edge IO project that we split into two batches. And like the second batch is literally sitting in our office right now, like <laughs> waiting for incoming quality inspection. Mm-hmm. And like the thing we need is those Edge IOs in stock, ready to ship to customers. Right. Like that's the, what do I get and when? So like right now, I mean, we're, we're almost over the finish line. Like mm-hmm. we still have a handful from the previous batch that are ready to ship out. So those are still good. But the, what do I get and when do I get it? Like, I don't need those boxes in the building. I need those in inventory, which means they've gone through incoming quality control, mm-hmm. which means like uh, they need to be received and in the building. But at the end of the day, I need something that I can ship to a customer. Right. That's the deliverable. That's like, you got to keep your eyes on the prize. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's the thing that we want to get done. So yeah. It's really a thing to focus on. Well, Sam, always a pleasure to talk to you, truly. Pleasure to work with you as well. But, you know, thanks for uh, stopping by. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and telling us about all these new books to read. Yeah. Behind the Ops is brought to you by Tulip. Connect the people, machines, devices, and systems used in your production and logistics processes with our revolutionary no-code frontline operations platform. Visit tulip.co to learn more. This show is produced by Jasmine Chan and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, support the show by leaving us a quick rating or review. It really helps. If you have feedback for this or any other of our episodes, you can reach us at behindtheops at tulip.co. Thank you for listening to Behind the Ops. I'm Kyle Oberholzer, and we'll see you next time.